Well, hello, church, and good afternoon. It's great to see your faces, as always, and what a privilege it is to gather today around God's Word. Now, to start off, I want to introduce you to a story of a guy who goes by the name of Jeff. Now, when Jeff was in high school, he wasn't really sure what he wanted to do, but he was remarkably driven and talented, and he knew he just wanted to transform the world. So what did Jeff do? He went into the army. And one thing to note is that Jeff had been keenly aware of death from a young age, and he was terrified of it, despite being, becoming a Christian at the age of 13. And so upon advancing up the ranks in the army, he eventually became an army ranger, one of the most elite roles in the entire military. You see, Jeff was committed to finding the biggest challenge. He wanted to know if he had what it took to find himself in situations where he could boldly stare death in the eye and persevere through it. And so he proceeded to take part in high-stakes mission after high-stakes mission before one day receiving credible intel of a notorious terrorist's whereabouts. And despite being smack in the middle of enemy strongholds, his unit proceeded with the mission. But upon approaching the target building, Jeff's unit was bombarded by enemy ambush, where unfortunately countless men under his care were killed in the line of battle. And Jeff's specific words were, for the first time in my life, despite all of the missions I had been on, I came to terms with the fact that I was about to die. His role became getting as many of his troops back to safety as possible, and against all odds, he made it back to base, but soon learned he still had some men out there, and you have to know rangers live by a creed that says, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of an enemy. And so as he quickly cleaned his friend's blood out of the back of the Humvee, he describes this kind of piercing fear he had never felt in his entire life as he was certain of his imminent death and that he would never see his family or newly pregnant wife again. And so what did Jeff do? He began to cry out to God. Now we're going to hit the pause button here for the time being and we'll return to the story later on in a bit, but... For our sake today, how would you respond to such a daunting mission? And how do you respond in the face of the unknown? What do you do when crippling fear stares you squarely between the eyes? Well, today, John 14 makes the case that the way we quench our anxieties is by trusting God, and that the way we're able to trust Him is through the many ways we've already come to know Him and experience Him as a direct result of what takes place in this chapter. So then what does that look like? What are our grounds for trusting him at such high stakes? If you want to go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. So John 14. We're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter together. If you don't have your Bible out, I'd encourage you to grab it and follow along. We're going to use it a lot. And if you're new to the Bible, I'd encourage you to quickly, you know, if you don't have one on you, download it to your phone and scroll to the Gospel of John in the New Testament. But in the, file of the following dialogue, intense tension is building. And anxiety levels are rising as Jesus delivers some news that terrifies his disciples, that sends a piercing fear through them. 
So let's go ahead and read verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You... Know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, so not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. 
Now, this is a lot of text, and so I want to attempt to make it as clear to you as I possibly can, so we won't be able to necessarily dive into each and every word or phrase. But for context, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples at the Last Supper, right before he would be turned over to the Romans. He's just identified Judas as the one who would soon betray him, and he immediately turns his attention to explaining to his disciples the critical role they're about to play in carrying out his mission, because as he also explains, he's about to leave them imminently. And so things just got real. So think of the disciples at this point. You could hear a pin drop at the table that night. And John's word choice describes a remarkably intense environment that has now swept over the room. The disciples are troubled. They have left and risked everything to be with Jesus, and now he's leaving. And so we've read briefly how they respond, but if you would just think with me for a second, how would you respond? How do you respond to such anxiety that intensely and inevitably presents itself? Well, this text tells us that we are to quench all our anxieties by trusting God as we know and experience him. And it does so through three points. Now, before I get to them, keep in mind, these are realities that are already present. So they weren't present at the time this chapter took place, but we're going to take a look at what these look like for Christians this side of John 14. Because the truth of the matter is that we today know Jesus far better, far more completely than the disciples ever did in John 14, despite his departure, or in fact, as a result of his departure. So how are we to trust God and persevere in the midst of uncertainty? What can we ground ourselves in today? Well, number one, you know the truth. That's verse 1 through verse 14. You know the truth. Number two, you're not alone. That's verse 15 through verse 26. And number three, you have nothing to fear. That's verse 27 through 31. The grounds or the rationale for you to trust God in the face of crippling fear, anxiety, and the unknown is that you know the truth. You're not alone, and you have nothing to fear. Look with me at verse 1 again. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So, bam, right there, out of the gates, Jesus shows that he understands the intensity of the moment and that this statement here serves as like a, like a heading that drives the rest of chapter 14. So all of chapter 14 is his response to verse 1. And quenching our fears and anxieties by trusting God is really just another way of saying that Jesus says here, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to look at how we can actually do that. His next stop, however, is to explain to the disciples that he's leaving. So, let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. And by the way, I'm, I'm leaving. It's like when you, like, uh, if you were to go to the doctor and they tell you, hey, don't worry, this won't hurt at all, only to proceed to do something that really hurts. But what he's telling them is that the time has come and he must leave for their own good and, and ultimately that his mission might be completed. In order for him to secure their eternal destiny, he must leave them. 
It's almost like when I uh, when I'll tell my daughter Joanna that I have something special for her, and then I proceed to go get it, only to then have her get really upset that I'm leaving her. But it's because in order to actually go get the thing that's special for her, I have to go get it. And so verse 2 and 3 is essentially Jesus saying the same. I'm preparing your eternal inheritance. Wait well. I'll be right back for you. And so keeping with our first point, you know the truth. Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to where I'm going. But wait a second, then Thomas says in verse 5, no we don't. And how can we know? To which Jesus replies, and I like the way the NIV puts it, as opposed to the ESV here. The NIV says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so in these verses, we see Jesus adamant that they know. Thomas, on the other hand, adamant they do not. And then Jesus doubles down in verse 7 that at the very least, at the very moment, they do know. They know the Father, and they know the way to him. So what just happened? This is like if someone were to come up to you and, and ask for directions. They say, hey, do you know how to get to such and such a place? And you go, um, no, sorry, actually, I don't. And they proceed to look at you and say, yeah, okay, yeah, you do. And you're just like, wait a second, what just happened? Enter verse 6, the famous I am statement. Look with me at it there. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is departing to the Father's house. He, he tells the disciples they know the way. In church, sure enough, we certainly know the way because the way is Jesus himself, amen? Amen. Theologian Don Carson does well to point out that Jesus being the truth and life plays a supporting role to him being the way. Or in other words, Jesus is the way to God precisely because he's the truth of God and the life of God. So Jesus is the truth precisely because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. Carson says, well, he says he, says he narrates God. The Apostle John, back in chapter 1, says Jesus is the Son of God, full of grace and truth. And Jesus is the life because, likewise, as John says back in chapter 1, he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then in chapter 5, he says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And so only because Jesus is the truth and life is he able to be the way, not only for the disciples, but for all who would turn away from their sins and believe in him. But here's the thing. Oftentimes this text and this verse is used to specifically point out the exclusivity of the truth of the gospel the exclusivity of Jesus being the only way to the Father, the only way to heaven, the only way to eternal life. I mean, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And while this is surely true, and Jesus is indeed the only way, the only truth, and the only life, despite what this fallen world will try to tell you or sell you, don't forget what this discourse is set in. Don't forget what sets the tone for this passage. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. I am the way, the truth, 
and the life, Thomas. You see, this is necessary to draw attention to because Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life here is not for the sake of telling people they're going to hell or for winning a theological argument. No, it's because the truth and the reality of that statement should automatically result in a peace that passes all understanding for the Christian, that no matter what the disciples face or no matter what may be on our minds today, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. The disciples heard it in this moment. They either did believe it or would soon believe it. And church, by all accounts, you believe it. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Because as Pastor James said last week, Jesus is the key to the Father's house. Yes, there's only one key. But church, you have it in your possession. And that should be the greatest of all comforts. Praise God. So Thomas was the second dialogue to take place here. And I say second instead of the first, because the first actually happened at the end of chapter 13. If you look at it with me there, when Peter is asking Jesus where he's going. And so just as an aside, while chapter numbers and editorial headings are there with the best of intentions to help us better navigate and understand the text. Uh, here is one example where they're completely unhelpful. And we must remember they're, they're not authoritative or inspired. Because Jesus' response here to the disciples being caught totally off guard are not just to Thomas, Philip, and Judas, but to Peter, the chief disciple as well. But I digress. Uh, this brings us to Jesus' dialogue with Philip in verse 8, where Philip essentially says, Please, if you're going to go, please, can you at the very least just show us the Father? Just a, a, a quick glimpse, please, just so we know he's real. To which Jesus replies in verse 9, Philip, after all this time, after everything you've heard me say, after everything you've seen me do, you still don't get it? You still want a sign? Friends, the only way to the Father is through Jesus. Because as verse 10 says, and we'll elaborate further on shortly. He and the Father are in perfect union with one another. And so more specifically, if you look at the second half of verse 10, the way to the Father is through the very words of Jesus. For his words are the Father's words. I think this is what Carson is getting at, saying that Jesus narrates God the Father. Like It's just, it's just a helpful way to think about it. And church, while I love good Christian books and, and think they're very helpful in the Christian life and in growing in the knowledge of God, which is very important, this is why we also need to read the Bible, the actual Bible, because that's where the supernatural power and energy is. That's where the Holy Spirit has placed his words through men. Believe me, Jesus says, it requires faith that you're actually hearing from the mouth of God when you search the scriptures, church when you study them on your own and in your discipling relationships. And so while I love John Piper and Charles Spurgeon and Calvin, and each of them certainly have their place, friends, may we repent of the ways we've sometimes seemingly placed the works of men on a pedestal anywhere close to the level of the words of Christ, which are the very words of God. And so, yes, please read good books on theology and the Christian life. By all means, but not to the neglect of God's word, brothers and sisters. And so here for Philip, seeing is 
believing. You know, I preached a sermon a couple months back titled, Seeing is Not Believing. Another commentator says it this way. He says that hearing and believing is seeing. And so my prayer is that we would taste and see that the Lord is good in his words today, friends. Amen. Amen. And so we have the words of God. And as you turn your attention to verses 11 through 14, we basically see two themes here. So we see the works of God and the power of prayer. And so for the sake of time on the topic of God's works, we can simply observe that aside from God's word, his works themselves demand faith for their extraordinary, their miraculous, and their life-giving. And yet still in verse 12, he says that whoever believes in him will do greater works than this. Now remember, the purpose of Jesus' works are to accomplish God's mission of establishing his new covenant people here on earth. And in the setting we find ourselves in, we find Jesus in the upper room, remember he's transitioning the execution of this mission at the ground level over to the disciples, which is what we see in the Great Commission, for example. But I don't believe this text is saying that we're going to perform greater miracles than Jesus in the sense that we're going to miraculously heal more people and prophesy new words of God and slay people in the spirit as the Pentecostal movement might have you, which has really only been a thing for the last hundred years or so. Rather, I think this is saying the greater works is the preaching of the words of Christ, which accomplishes the work and the mission of the Father in creating his regenerate new covenant people who will have their hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh and spirits resurrected from dead to life. And this understanding is consistent with the works Jesus describes in previous chapters in John. So in other words... The greater works here are more conversions, more spiritual births of God's people throughout Christian history, even up to today. I think it was J.C. Ryle who said that there's no greater work possible than the conversion of a human soul. So friends, do, do you know that these greater works are available to us today? This very moment. Obviously not to be able to necessarily con convert a soul, but now with a, a complete Bible a complete gospel to share, and the church as his new covenant people that we get to live life together on this pilgrimage to heaven. And note, preaching the gospel is not just available to us, church, it's commanded of us. And here, the preaching of the good news is commissioned by Jesus, carried on by his disciples, and continued even to this day by his body, the church, until he returns. And then when it comes to prayer, verse 13 reads, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So is this just a blank check or, or, or some kind of genie in a bottle for all of our wants and requests? Hardly. The Bible tells of, of false prophets who seek to activate Jesus' name like a magic button and yet fail miserably. And so then what could Jesus be saying here then? And I think it's that essentially in my name means that which will glorify the Father and execute his will. Because if you remember, to act in accordance with Jesus' name is to do the will of the Father, for that's all Jesus did and does. So in other words, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray that he will give us 
all we need for our good and his glory with the two being totally inseparable. That is comforting, church. It may not look exactly how we always want it to or even ask it to, but his promise is sure and we can trust him. That no matter what we might face, our job is not to change God's mind, but to allow him to change our hearts as he provides at each step along the way. Friends, this is the power of prayer. And this is why at New Covenant Baptist Church, we try to place a particular prominence and premium and and priority on obeying God in this way by taking our requests to him and praising him by continuing to rely on him. That's why today in our Sunday service, you know, you hear so many prayers. That's why we have a prayer meeting once a month. That's why twice a week we gather for early early morning prayer at 6 a.m. This is the power of prayer. And so church, as Jesus teaches his disciples that he's the way, the truth, and the life to our eternal destiny, and as he gives them instructions for hearing the word, considering his works, and participating in the power of prayer on this side of the cross, we're able to quench our fears and anxieties by trusting the God we've come to know, love, and experience through his word. You want to know God more and see his works manifested in his mission brought to completion? Continue believing the truth and ground yourselves in it. Believe the truth of God's word. Believe the greatness of God's works and believe the power of prayer. You know the way. You know the truth and you know the life. The keys to the kingdom are in your hands and they're in the person and work of Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. The second reason you're able to trust God in the midst of hardship, fear, and anxiety is that you're not alone. You're not alone. Now we're gonna jump around a little bit between verses in the second section because that's what John does in his authorship here. So for example, in verse 15, it says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then verse 21 begins by restating essentially the exact same thing. It says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. But then he adds, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then again in verse 23, we see Jesus replying not to Peter, not to Philip, but to Judas this time. So not Iscarius, but other Judas. That, quote, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's another way of saying commandments. And uh, my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Well, did you notice there that in many ways, he's basically saying the exact same thing here three times, that if you love God, you'll keep his word, you'll keep his commandments. More specifically, in the original setting, that if the disciples love God the Father, the one true God, they will keep the commandments of God the Son, Jesus. And that in doing so, they'll come to know and experience the Father more and more. So church, how many times does John have to say the same thing here? The question posed to you and I is, do you love God? Do we love God? I mean, truly love God. God. The test of faith here is how burdensome or embarrassing are his commandments to you. 
How do you respond to them? Is your personal holiness important to you today? Or do you need to repent today? Or do you need to repent right now? Given that these near identical statements are here, we should expect to then find some kind of helpful explanation or instruction in the text in between, which of course we do in the sense that Jesus gives the command for obedience and then follows it with the means by which we'll actually be able to obey. So Jesus basically says, if you love me, you'll obey me, only to then follow it with, and I will send the helper, verse 16. If you love me, you'll obey me, and then follows it with, I will not leave you as orphans, verse 17. If you love me, you'll obey me, and then follows it with, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, verse 26. Time and time again in our God, we have a model and the means by which the disciples will be able to obey and in which we will be able to obey. Jesus commissions and commands obedience, yet assures over and over that the disciples, that we will not be left to ourselves. So friends, the way to perseverance is a faith that leads to obedience. And it's wrought and carried out in the life of the born-again believer by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes it possible. And that's why Jesus had to depart, that he might come and dwell in us and unite us to the Father. So these ministries of the Holy Spirit are not the ones you'll hear about often in, in pop culture Christianity. Again, we don't see miraculous healings and prophecies, but rather the Holy Spirit ministering through the ministries of, of empowering for service uh, in the previous section. Uh, in his presence, verse 16, as uh, the spirit of truth, verse 17, in uniting us to the Godhead, as verses 17 through 23, as a spotlight to Christ, verse 19, in supporting loving obedience and in helping us obey God, verses 21 through 24, in teaching us, verse 26, and in bringing us peace, which is in the next section I'll get to. And friends, notice also, contrary to the heresies that have been spewed or insinuated, especially in recent years, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. So the, the Spirit is a he, not an it. He's not some kind of mystical Pocahontas wind that sweeps through the air, dropping feelings and emotions all around like some kind of magical fairy does. No, he's the third person of the Trinity. He's God himself. He's God in us. And in John 14, all of this is contingent upon Jesus' departure. Jesus must depart so that the Spirit might come. You see, God's plan has always been that his mission would go forth through the obedience and mouthpiece of his people. That's why Jesus must depart so that the Spirit might come and empower them, empower us for the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. Pastor, author, theologian, Michael Reeves, uh, he puts it wonderfully in his little book on the Trinity. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, he writes, why did the son depart? Because he says, I love the father and I do exactly what my father has commanded me. So the father sent the son because of how he so loved him and wanted that love to be shared and enjoyed. And the son went because he so loved his father and wanted that love to be shared and enjoyed. 
And so the resulting mission comes from the overflow of love, from the uncontainable enjoyment of this fellowship. So it is with the Father and the Son, and so it is with us. The Spirit catches us up to share in this pleasure, and it is in that delight in them that helps us, that gets us to want to obey God and make him known to all people. And Reeves gets this kind of intimate language right here in John 14 where we see consistent language like in and with and within and forever. You're not alone, Christian. This life is not on you to simply figure out and fend for yourself. The living God, this very moment, dwells inside of you. And he's united his spirit with yours and has awakened it to Christ. What blessed assurance we found, friends. That's why this chapter is fundamental and key to understanding what life looks like as a Christian between Christ's ascension and his return. Because what Jesus is describing here is exactly the reality we find ourselves currently living in. Just a, uh, a couple of final comments on this section before we have to move on. Jesus says in verse 23 and 24 that whoever keeps his words will be loved. Now, to keep is to own, to protect, to maintain. And if you notice what it does not mean, it does not mean watered down, right? It's not if anyone loves me, he will water down my words because he's embarrassed by them or thinks they're not culturally appropriate or, or thinks they'll scare off non-Christians. It also doesn't mean adding to. If anyone loves me, he will add to my words to get what he or she wants or to control others. That's called legalism or sometimes outright heresy. It also doesn't mean being flippant with. If anyone loves me, he will be flippant with my words because we're too lazy or undisciplined to actually understand them, or because we're so arrogant, we think there's actually a better way of saying them. You see, God's people are to be grounded in the words of Jesus, which are the words of the Father, which as verse 26 says, the Holy Spirit will guarantee by enabling the apostles to remember, understand, and record in the scriptures. So this is why our church is so Bible-centric why we care so much about biblical doctrine. It's not just you know, to be right or to distinguish ourselves from others. Now, it's because we believe in a very good and historical reason to do so, that Jesus's words are the words of the Father, that were delivered to us in the scriptures by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. But the very words of scripture that we read right now, right this moment, are faithfully and historically preserved from the Holy Spirit-inspired authors from thousands of years ago. So this is, this is also why we place such an emphasis on expositional preaching, which is the diligent effort of what we're doing right now to draw from this text why this Spirit-inspired author, so John in this case, wrote this or that particular text at this particular time to this particular audience for this particular pastoral purpose. Because we have before us the very words of God, church. I don't have to sit here and make up a bunch of things. We have the power of the word of God. 
There's so much more I could go on and say about this topic, and I wish I could, including you know countless of other texts that point to the validity and authority and sufficiency of the scriptures we have before us, uh, but we must move on. You're not alone, brothers and sisters. How are you to trust God? You're not alone. You have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you, enabling you to face fear and the unknown. You have the very words of God in the scriptures, as the Spirit has so graciously provided. Amen. You put the two of those things together, and you have the Spirit himself inside of you, there to teach you the very words of God as he enlightens and empowers you to love his words and keep his commandments until Christ comes again. And that's why verses 19 and 20 are here. It says, yet, uh, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Finally, number three, how are we to trust God? What grounds do we have for such assurance? You have nothing to fear. You have absolutely nothing to fear. Jesus says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. So after all of the explanation Jesus provides, he's now bringing the conversation back around to his desire for his followers. It's what we saw in verse 1, and it's exactly the same here in verse 27 that their hearts would not be troubled and that they would experience and rest in the peace provided by the Holy Spirit. How? Well, just from this chapter and what we've already taken a look at, you're able to be at Peace Church because you have a place prepared for you in heaven. You are loved. You know the way. You know the truth. You know the life. You have the Spirit of God in you. You have the word of God available to you. Whom shall you fear? But there's more. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, which is like a type of superficial peace, a circumstantial peace. You see, how might the world give peace to you in the midst of hardship or when you're dealing with anxiety? You know, maybe the world will help you change your circumstances. Maybe it'll change your circumstances for you. But we know that's temporary. Maybe it'll cut you a check or distract you. Maybe give you exactly what you want or something close, something to just keep you occupied. But friends, that's not lasting peace. You know that. That's just a flimsy, malleable placebo effect. What we need is a deeply rooted, unshakable, incorruptible inner peace that only God can give and has given. And that's why verse 28 is here. You know, it says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Which may sound a little confusing, but most commentators generally agree that what Jesus is saying, that is, if the disciples truly understood or fully understood what's going on and what was about to take place, they would rejoice because everything is under control. Everything is under the Father's sovereignty and their eternal inheritance awaits them. 
This is the type of truth that offers a steady, unshakable peace. A type of peace that transcends hardship, transcends anxiety about the unknown, transcends even death. A peace available to each and every Christian here today. So brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you know, you're struggling with a particular hardship, perhaps your family's in turmoil, or you feel, you know, I just can't gain victory over this sin. Or you're lonely. Or you're stressed. Or you're just wanting to be married. Or your workplace is toxic. Friends, God is sovereignly working in your life right now to sanctify you, to grow you, to gain your trust, and to finally deliver you into your heavenly abode for all of eternity. And I know, you know, for some of you, depending on what's going on and what's right there in front of you, in front of your face, begging for your immediate attention and anxiety, you know, sometimes this might sound great in theory, but you're just having a, a hard time connecting your head with your heart. I think a part of that is that we find ourselves in, in this really unique point in history where really for the first time ever in, in centuries past, our century is the first where, you know, death seems to not loom in the same way it has throughout all of history. Death doesn't often feel like it's at our doorstep. Disease, famine, plagues, you know, child, uh, complications from childbirth, war and conquest, they can often seem distant to us, especially in a, a, a 2021 United States of America. But friends, don't let modern medicine and, and technological advancements fool you into believing such a mirage that death is really that far away. Christians have always seen this life as a mere waiting room for eternity. Think of yourself as like a, a, at the doctor's office, waiting for an appointment, right? You're just waiting for the nurse to come call on you. All right, Holly, it's your time. Troy, you're up. Reynolds, your time's here. That's death's call, and it's coming for you. Don't let this world's feeble attempts to veil the reality of death distract you from the glories of eternity that are soon to be had, tasted, and treasured forever. It's as I prayed earlier, you know, for our, our brother Tim Keller right now, who is on the verge of meeting King Jesus face to face after all of his work, after all of his studies, after all of his preaching, all of that is about to become a reality. Friends, you have nothing to fear. This life is a mere dress rehearsal for all of eternity. Because Jesus defeated death once for all, and he likewise defeated the devil. That's why verses 19 and, uh, sorry, verses 29 and 30 are here. The one who would seek to destroy you, to torment you, to make your life a living hell, an eternal conscious hell. He's been confronted and bound and defeated by our great Savior. He has no claim on me, verse 30 says. And you know what? Friends, he has absolutely no claim on you either, whatsoever, not even a fraction. And that is totally independent on your performance and solely dependent on what Christ did. 
Because again, Jesus did all that the Father commanded him because you and I did not and have not. And now calls on you, calls on all of us, each of us, to forsake our sins and embrace the grace poured out for you as your substitute on the cross. If you've not done so, will you do that today? Will you, friend? You know, don't, don't play with death. Don't just be thinking, you know, you know, I just want to get the best of both worlds. Maybe I'll get that chance on my, my deathbed, you know, to, to, to get right with God, so to speak. Or maybe you just have a really hard time thinking about death or you've never really thought about it. You just try to distract yourself one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And I'll think about the more serious things in life later at another point when I have more time or when I get diagnosed with that sickness or when something really terrible happens. Or maybe you're just foolish enough here today to, to you know, say, I'm not afraid of death. When I die, I'll just you know, go back into the ground. I don't believe that. And I don't think you do either. Friends, now is the time. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. Because if you do, your destiny is secure. Your eternal rest will await you on the other side of the window of death. And you will have absolutely nothing to fear. And I love the end of verse 31 because, you know, in John's gospel, it serves as like a literary marker to transition into the later events. But how fitting it is for us today, church. In the face of dire circumstances, in the face of fear and anxiety, in the face of hardship and, uh, and the unknown, because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you can be comforted with an unshakable peace because you know the truth. You're not alone and you have absolutely nothing to fear. And what better words to cap it all off than rise. Let us go from here. You know, if we return to our friend Jeff, as he prepared to climb back into that Humvee and as he cried out to God in piercing fear, he describes how in that very moment, the truth of the gospel came to mind about how Christ, certain of heaven, certain of the joy set before him, bore that cross, giving his life for the sake of many, for the sake of his salvation. And in that moment, he realized that, you know, one of two things was about to happen to him. He was either about to miraculously make it through the rest of that search and rescue and return home to his wife and child in Georgia, or he was about to enter into the presence of God forever. And his words were, quote, I could not lose because of what Christ my Savior had done for me. In that moment, he said his fear absolutely vanquished as he spent the rest of the night going back and forth, rescuing his men who would go on to tell him years later, even to this day, you know, there was something different about you that night. What was it? And friends, I think it's that he knew the truth. He knew he wasn't alone. And he knew he had absolutely nothing to fear. And he who once wanted to transform the world so badly as a young man now says, as a pastor and professor of theology, that there's truly only one way of doing so. 
and that's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as a God worthy of all our praise. We thank you so much that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, help us to faithfully follow you in this pilgrimage to heaven, draw near to us, help us to face the turbulence of this world with boldness and full assurance. For the sake of many, for the sake of your kingdom, and for the sake of your name, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.